Today, I have with me to chat about game design, community building, and indie game development. One of the co-founders of the Seattle-based indie game studio, Megacrit, Anthony Giovanetti. Uh, with Casey Yana, he started a small team to create this game, Slay the Spire. It's a single-player, roguelike, deck-builder video game. Has overwhelmingly positive uh, rating on Steam, over twenty five thousand reviews, and just got a Nintendo Switch release, uh, which I just got. Uh, I think I played about over a hundred hours uh, on the Steam version. So yeah, thanks for uh, joining the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Yeah, I guess just to start, I I, I was going to say that I didn't want to turn this podcast into a gaming podcast, but I, I think uh, even I think you've also mentioned like you grew up with board games and. I, in a similar way, I grew up playing video games, and I remember my dad like always telling me, "He's like, when are you gonna like grow out of board games and video games?" Um, <laughs> my my parents did the same thing. <laughs> it's like here we are, like talking about you're making them, and then I'm like, I feel like I'm still like I don't even play as much, but I'm still keeping up to date with like games that are coming out or watching GDC talks, even though I don't even make games at all um, or listening to podcasts about them. I, I think it's just. Like this idea of games as systems is really interesting. So I think it'd be cool to talk about that. Definitely. Yeah, I guess maybe we should start off because not everyone may be so into games. Maybe we should, maybe we can uh, start with just like why people like games in general and what makes them unique as opposed to, I guess, different genres of communication and also like entertainment. Sure. So, um, so what makes games fun is, is it's interesting because it's like kind of a very large and hard to answer question. Right. And it, and it's, um, it's oftentimes like different for different people. So, um, there's a lot of factors that go into games and make them so compelling. And like, for me personally, the thing that I really like from games is that you're exploring these interactive systems and, um, making interesting decisions and then developing mastery. That's like the thing that I like about games. But then you might have other people who they really like, you know, games for their stories. You know, they, mm-hmm. they really like getting into like maybe an old game like Planescape Torment or something and just uh, experiencing that story. Or they're more about exploring and um, or like building a character that they identify with. So games really offer a lot of different paths to enjoyment and fun. But for me personally, and what uh, I did with Slay of the Spire was we tried to make a very like systems-focused game. So it's very much about the gameplay mechanics and exploring those and um, developing mastery as a player. Right, it's true. And it also sounds like games can also be all of those things. And I think of a game like... I guess a game like Firewatch, where it's like it is mostly about story, versus like a music game where there's not really that much like choices other than just like playing the instrument kind of thing, and it's just that enjoyment. Yeah, yeah. it's more of an activity. Yeah, like the, I know that there's a lot of like academic discussion about you know why games are fun and, and things mm-hmm. like that, and I, I actually don't concern myself with the esoterics of that too much. I try to take more of a pragmatic practical (laughs) approach in in my game development and uh you know i try to think okay what are the things that i like how can i take those values and then really emphasize them and do those correctly i I just watched this like i guess talk that jonathan blow gave or even i don't know if it's talk but um he i just like the title he says games are the future of human thought which is very uh a big statement for him to say but I thought it was interesting that, you know, he talks about how, I mean, essentially a lot of this is about 
like you you mentioned like mastery. So I guess it's about learning, like this idea that before you know before we had language, you would you would learn by watching, and then once we had language, you could talk to people, and then we had writing, you could retain that information over time, and then through writing, maybe we had radio and podcasting and films, and then we finally get to this point of games where it's like you can actually physically or digitally interact with systems or people. Um, and that is very different from all these other mediums where it's kind of, it feels more one way or it explicitly makes things two way. Right. Yeah. What's unique about games is that they're, they're inherently interactive feeding back into the system. However, I mean, games have been around for a lot longer than video games, you know, like chess and go have been around for, <laughs> for a long time. And, uh, so that dynamic has been there, just just not in digital form, where we can explore so much more. That's a good point too, I guess, um, and, and even board games too, right? And mm-hmm. I guess what what would you think are kind of the distinctive between board games and video games, and like why are even like why did you decide to do a video game when your background um, was in board games? Sure. So so just uh, to uh, clarify for people who don't know, I actually ran a a board game store for a long time. I sold a lot of magic cards. <laughs> um, uh, and, and yeah, that definitely f- uh, was part of, or was a large influence in Slay the Spire because I have this large card game, board game background. But I mean, primarily the main difference between them is, you know, just the medium and how much more you're able to do with a digital game. But uh, for being an indie, to me, being able to do digital games is just a, it's the only way that actually makes sense. Like it's way, it's so much harder to make, you know, any kind of money or a foothold in the board game industry. Um, you're a lot more limited with what you can do. Um, you know, you don't have an entire computer capable of doing all kinds of different things. So mm-hmm. you're, you're much more limited by components and the, the rules that people have to actually like learn from a rule book and things like that. Um, there's all kinds of little things that, you know, you can do with UI that, digitally you can actually uh, convey much more information and even little things like for example in say the spire um you don't have to shuffle your deck manually every Mm. time that's always like a pain (laughs) point in dominion where you get tired after you've played like your hundredth game of dominion of just shuffling and shuffling and shuffling your little deck it's gets really tedious so like Digital games have a bunch of advantages, I think, actually. Um, to me, the primary advantage that a board game has is that you're sitting down and playing with friends. Mm. So it's more that um, that kind of local camaraderie, you know, that, that friendship. That's what a board game can do really well. And Slay the Spire is a single-player game. So I think single-player games, it's like just a strict uh, strict victory for digital games over board games. I've never played a single-player board game that I liked. so <laughs> Like Solitaire or something. Um, yeah. Although a lot of people say that Dominion is like Solitaire. Yeah, I mean, Dominion is definitely a low-interaction board game, I would say. It's just funny that you brought up like the shuffling thing. And in another, the other sense is that if you don't like get card sleeves, then your maybe your cards get used a lot, and then you have to buy new ones if they get ripped and stuff. And then obviously, there's no issue with that in a digital card game. It, to me, it felt like recently with video games that it used to be that there was like couch co-op kind of thing. You bring people over, you have like LAN parties and stuff. And now it's like all the video games have become like single player, not single player, multiplayer games, but like on one screen where everyone has their own console. And then slowly like. I guess board games kind of like came up again and then people are kind of 
doing that to get their like um, multiplayer experience locally mm-hmm. in person. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. It's been interesting to watch uh, how the industries trend over time. Yeah, I guess getting back to this idea of being interactive, um, I've been doing some random like research about this uh, philosopher Michael Polanyi, um, and I like this idea of mastery where you know the way we learn things might not be literally through like teaching someone by like reading something, but like through the practice of doing something. He talks about this idea that, you know, sometimes we lose knowledge, um, not just like the data of something, but like kind of the process. So like maybe we've kept the artifact of what's left, but we don't remember how to make it. And he thinks that the, the reason why is because we've lost this idea of like even like tradition and apprenticeship. And so he, he brings up this idea of indwelling, which is like kind of taking on and living in that thing that you're trying to learn about. And I think games are like a perfect way of doing that, where it's like, you know, when you're playing a game, you're immersed in this, you know, world or environment, and it helps you to like be personally attached to the thing you're learning or playing. Um, and instead of like kind of observing it from a detached point of view. And I think, I think games in terms of like, he likes this idea of when you learn something new, it brings new possibilities into what's, what's there and I think games are kind of, it creates, uh, it helps you create a sense of imagination on like what's possible, especially in a systems game where it's like, especially in Say the Spy, right? It's like you have these different cars that randomly uh, appear and you have to pick which ones. And then you're trying to, you're thinking through like what combinations are possible. Uh, that's for sure true. It's very hard to um, learn all kinds of domains just by like observing and reading, um, getting your hands into the thick of it and experiencing Whatever whatever it is is always going to be uh, a better experience for how human brains are configured. So uh, it makes sense why we like games so much. Um, you can watch all the basketball you want, but you're going to have to actually go out and play it to actually develop some kind of mastery. And we're reading a book about basketball rather than... Yeah, you know, it's, it's not going to do anything for you because that's just this... It's not fundamentally how uh, human brains are able to experience new things so yeah i guess thinking about that it's like i feel like a lot of different you know disciplines or industries could learn from gaming so whether it's programmers or architects and or or, you know people in like even like economics right which is all about incentives and Mm -hmm. i think a lot of times like going back to my dad saying it's just like when you're going to learn to like get over that um when you're older is like people still think that games are just just like a fun thing or a leisure. I mean, they mostly are, but I think, you know, like if you're developing this kind of thinking through it, then um, people can incorporate that into other aspects of, of life. Also, I think without doing the whole like gamification thing where like you just attach points to things, right? Right. Yeah. Just some extrinsic reward. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think that, um, the, oh, video games are just like a mindless distraction. That's bad for you is more of a, thinking of at least my parents' generation. Uh, I've seen some research that seems to indicate that playing games can actually be good for your mental health and various other things. So wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. Yeah, so I brought up incentives. When someone's playing your game, what do you, I guess, what is your goal for wanting them? Like, what do you want them to do? Not other than just like, you know, having fun, but like throughout the process of this, like, what do you want them to actually learn? Sure. So like at, at the higher level. So, mm-hmm. um, so, so one of the things that we tried to emphasize is we want to encourage people to explore different paths. So, um, 
what I mean by that is like, we don't just let people choose their starting deck. We, uh, you know, sometimes people have, they they even like request that, Hey, I'd be really nice if I could like pick a starting rare or something so I can kind of direct where my deck wants to go, you know, at the start of the game. And that's actually a conscious design decision that we said, Hey, we don't want to do that. We want to force you to engage with the system and try new, new things out, um, Mm -hmm. every time. Um, so that was a big goal to aspire. And then another was that we would have a concept of risk uh, versus reward. So we wanted paths that were less safe choices that you could make that in the short term would increase the difficulty, but that would yield long-term rewards so that uh, players could try to be greedy, you know, and uh, actually test themselves on, on their evaluations. So those were some things that we were taking into the game that we really wanted to let people explore. And then the, then, then on top of that, just uh, there's like the school of thought of games are a series of interesting decisions. And mm-hmm. that was, you know, I tend to agree with that as those are the kind of games I like the most. And I really, really wanted to have as many high impact choices as possible in say the spire, which is why after every combat we give you like, one big choice of, okay, what card are you adding to your deck now? And then, uh, you know, there's a bunch of other different choices in the game, but we wanted to just constantly reinforce um, things like that. I think it's interesting, like, thinking about the risk-reward idea. And and also, I guess, similar to that, it's like short-term, long-term, or temporary gain, permanent gain. It's weird because I feel like a lot of us are, like, you know, like, loss averse. So it's uh, it's like, how do you teach people to be okay with taking the risk and especially in you know the the, the genre this is in, uh, which is a roguelike, uh, which I, I guess we can explain what that is. Um, I guess we would say that roguelike type games are games where there's some kind of randomness involved, and then uh, permadeath, where like when you lose, you have to start over. And so I think, yeah, and and, and to, to clarify really quick, sorry, it's just by randomness, I would say that usually there's some kind of procedural generation and how the game's constructed. So memorization doesn't really help. Right. And so I, I guess it's funny because it kind of hits against this assumption that, you know, like the only way I'm going to enjoy this game is if I always win or like it continually win or I find a way that it's will lead to that kind of success. And and, and sometimes the re- maybe the reason why I like Roguelikes is because I'm OK with not winning. And like the, the joy is just being better and learning like the system. But it's hard to like get people to think differently about that. And I think that might be where. Some people might say this game is bad because it's too hard or like I lose too much, that kind of thing. I So I guess you can always have people that dislike a game because it's too hard and that's fine. You know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I don't think that every game needs to be for every person. And if you don't like mm-hmm. games that are too difficult, maybe Slay the Spire won't be for you. And that's okay. <laughs> it, you know, like... I think that uh, it's foolish to try to make a game that pleases everyone, and then you're just not doing a good job of pleasing the you know like you can you can make everyone kind of like your game, but then you'll have you won't have people that just absolutely love it. And I I really wanted to make a, a good game that people would actually you know really f- fall into and love and you know put hundreds and thousands of hours into and that's that's what we tried to do okay we, we talked about a bit about like uh players wanting to force certain i guess strategies that they have and I, I think you talked about about eventually when you play you're like oh this is the way that you win like they they, they feel like they've mastered it and and it's like 
but you, you're saying that you don't you didn't want to design the game such that you can necessarily choose because the point of it is to adapt to what's going on. Um, so I guess, what do you think about like, I mean, obviously it's fine for people to, and you create these kind of archetypes, but I guess it's like, how do you balance allowing people to like exploit those, but then also not have to like know that that's the only way to, to win. Sure. So, so that was, uh, one of the key balance things that, um, we spent a lot of time on and I'm, I'm really happy with how it turned out because I think we did a good job on. And so, so how it works is there are certain decks and relic combinations that, you know, if you can reach it, you know, you can say, okay, this is going to be a sufficient strategy to beat the game with. Right. But what we, what we do is we make it sufficiently hard to reach those endpoints. Uh, so one, you have to know that, Hey, you know, that is a viable strategy that will work. But then two, you have to like work really hard to get it. And then three, uh, you just might not be able to get it every time. And so that's what makes it hard to reach and forces you to try other things. And then you can see that we have a bunch of different strategies with, within each character that are viable to beat the game. Um, and we, we wanted to create different like silos, like okay, there's a poison strategy, there's a shiv strategy. Um, and we would have, these would be useful mainly for newer players as like, it's important for somebody who's sitting down to be able to look at some cards and to be able to say, Hey, I can see what I can do with this. You know, if you, if you pop up like catalyst, which is a card that doubles the poison on an enemy, you can look at that and then say, okay, I can see how I can abuse that. You know, I can see the strategies that I can try to use to kill enemies with this. And that's a really good thing that's useful for teaching people how to play. And then as they play more, they'll realize that, oh, actually, I don't require just just this strategy. Like, they're not always going to have access to that card. Uh, you know, they're going to be kind of at the whims of what the dungeon's giving them. And that's going to force them to explore other things. And as they try out other strategies and see what works and what doesn't, they're going to build up these mental heuristics and, and mm-hmm. figure out what works. And I guess related to that is I saw their... So there's this website called like Spire Locks, um, and a lot of and maybe people I think they get to this point where they're like, oh, I wonder what other people think. Mm-hmm. And so like in other games, there are like tier lists, um, and then now there's like maybe there's certain sites that tell you like, oh, you should do this. Um, I guess what are your what's your opinion on that kind of stuff? I, I'm actually really happy that Spire Logs exists. Uh, in fact, during during development, Casey and I thought it'd be really cool if some if fans made sites like. You know, we didn't say spiral logs, but we said, you know, data analysis sites and people would like talk about strategies and stuff because, you know, I'm, I'm a big card game gamer myself and I always love going into, into like Reddit or other forums and mm-hmm. I, you know, talk about top tier strategies with people. And I think that in itself is kind of engaging and fun, um, mm-hmm. you know, for like a, a more hardcore subset of a player base. And so that was something I actually hoped would be created. Nice. And so when it was, I was like, oh, that's that's really cool. And, um, you know, you can certainly use that data to help your game. But just relying on sites like Spirologs is definitely not going to take you to, like, the peaks of player skill. Um, there's a big streamer, uh, Jorbs, who's probably, you know, one of the best Spire players in the world. And he's posted up videos on like why you can't, you know, totally trust those stats because they can, they can be useful. You know, they can, they can help to guide your 
your reasoning and your mental heuristics, but you can't just look at a card and be like, oh, 56% of the time this is in your deck, mm-hmm. you win with it. That doesn't really contain as much information about, okay, what, yeah, but what are you like including with, you know, what else is in your deck besides that card? What relics do you have to synergize with it? You know, these are contextual things that are going to vary run by run and that will change the evaluation of a given card. And so, so that's, um, that's part of what I was getting into earlier, where mm-hmm. because things are so dynamic in Slay the Spire, what you will want will change on a run-by-run basis, and that increases the player's skill cap because you can't just be like, okay, if I see this card, always take it. You know, you have to decide, hey, does this card work with my deck at this time? Does it solve the goal that I'm looking for? Uh, you can You can make decisions that are like, oh, I need to fight an elite that's coming up. So I need a big damage card to add to my deck. So even though I would like to take this card, I should take this damage card instead to help me for this elite fight. And whereas, you know, maybe five rooms later, you'd like to swap which which of those cards you took. So those are the kind of things that make for a more rich and interesting um, game. And, you know, more interesting decisions. Right. So like maybe that number makes it look like objectively you should always take it. But obviously like one decision is actually a bunch of decisions because of all the context that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. And, and, and part of, of why this works is when we sat down to design or to balance the aspire and really quick, this is an advantage that digital games have over board games. This is something, you know, I thought of going back to that earlier is that we, I, I know just as a card game player that you can't achieve perfect balance, air quotes, uh, you know, in a, in a card game. Like if we have hundreds and hundreds of cards, you know, you're just, you're just not going to reach perfect balance where every card is equally good all of the time. So instead what we tried to do is we wanted to make it so that almost every card in the game has at least some percentage of the time when you would like to take it. So, you know, there are cards that are better than other cards, but you should still want to take the other cards some amount of the time and add them to your deck and play with them. And if we could do that, then we could, one, it would actually be like a goal that we could achieve because <laughs> significantly easier to do. And then two, um, we could reach this this state of the game that, that I've been talking about where you still have plenty of interesting decisions to make and they're contextual. I guess it's different for a single player versus multiplayer, like balancing, but Very much. Uh, yeah. And then also like, or I guess you want to speak to that too. Yeah, sure. And, um, and that, that's, yeah. that's a big part of wisely the spire works. Uh, so, you know, if it's a game like Hearthstone, if you just have a card that's, that's better than another card, you'll just always play with it in your deck. And that's what the metagame will be. Right. But Slay the Spire is single player and it's roguelike, so you don't get to choose what's in your deck. So because of that, we can we can allow for a more dynamic range of balance and still have things be played. And then also we can allow the player to sometimes be overpowered. Because it actually feels really good when the player does reach that state where just all the gears are turning smoothly and you're just crushing the enemy and they'll have a really good run and they'll just feel super satisfied at the end of it. And, you know, if if you do that in a multiplayer game, well, that doesn't work very well because one person just steamrolls the other, you know, in like a turn or two or whatever. And then that other player is having a miserable experience. So we don't have 
the equivalent of that because the computer does not feel miserable when you beat it, you know? <laughs> so um, it's a huge, huge advantage that single-player games have. So we can allow for a feeling of overpoweredness. And uh, an, an example of this is in card games, there's this concept of a, an infinite combo, like chain off some cards in a way where you reach some infinite, arbitrarily large value of like damage or whatever it is that lets you win, and then you win. Uh, no matter what. So Magic and other card games, they have those, and they can be fun, but, you know, like I said, it doesn't feel good for the other player on the end of the infinite combo. Right. And so the Spire, we wanted, to, we wanted to actually have infinites be a thing that was possible because, you know, like I said, it just feels good when you get it off. But the big thing that we did is we tried to make it so it's hard to get those. So they're, they're extra rewarding when you do get them because they're rare, and they're hard to get, when you do get the infinite combo off and you beat the game as a result, you feel good about it because you worked hard to get to that point and it doesn't happen that often. Yeah, I really like that, like that you can actually make overpowered cards, but then you just, if the chance of them is less, then it still works. Rather than just making all these cards that are very, like, I guess, boring in a way. Yeah, tame, yeah. <laughs> uh, do, you, do you think much about like balancing like new users and then our new players and I guess experienced players. Very, very much so. So, um, part uh, so one of the things we do with Slay Aspire is even early on, is we took really detailed metrics on everything, and even even now, I mean, we have whenever somebody plays, they submit anonymous data to a metri- our metric server, and we can see you know win rates and you know, how much they're picking certain cards, how much damage enemies are dealing, all kinds of things like that, and then. One of the cool systems that we developed, because you know this is a hard question, especially for roguelikes. How much do you want? How hard do you want it to be for new players? Because if it's mm-hmm. if it's um, too easy, so that the new players don't feel too bad, then your veteran players could get bored. So one of the cool systems we developed is the ascension system, mm-hmm. where once you beat the spire for the first time, you'll unlock ascension one, and that that adds a an extra layer of difficulty to the game. And then if you beat the game on Ascension 1, you unlock Ascension 2, and that adds even more difficulty to the game. And so as you go up, you slowly unlock all the way to Ascension 20, where you add 20 different difficulty modifiers onto the game, and it's significantly harder. And so we create this kind of stratified um, difficulty where as you get better and better at the game, you're climbing the Ascension ladder and... Mm -hmm the experience is always kind of matching the difficulty you want it to be at. And then in our metrics, we can actually look at Ascension levels. So I can I can say, hey, let's look at Ascension 20 players, how they're doing. And then I can go look at the no Ascension players and see how they're doing. And then I can make sure that the win rates are where I want them for the different player groups. Yeah, that's really cool. I, don't, I wonder how many games actually take as much metrics as you guys do um it, so i mean there there is a good amount of metrics use in the industry um less so in among indies i would say which oh, I see. which is obviously i think a mistake but um but i mean there still are a lot of people that use metrics but i think there are still also plenty of games that probably could have benefited from more metric use um but yeah it's been an invaluable tool for us in balancing the game yeah because i i think about um so one of the problems with open source software is that people are not okay with like tools taking analytics data, even if it's anonymized. And so most projects have no idea who's using them or how they're using it. And so 
you're kind of just lost unless you talk to people. And I think it's nice that uh, other than the fact that we give analyze data to websites all the time, but for some reason in software, it's harder. Yeah. No, no, we do let people turn that off too, if they don't. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, um, but yeah, that, that does seem like a problem, especially because uh, with open source, you'd have to have like a central repository to store the metrics. Mm -hmm. So I guess that that's that's solvable, I guess, but more of a cultural issue. Um, but also in a way it's like doing in a way that people know that you're not trying to do something weird with it. Can you talk about your background? And because I know you, yeah, I've listened to some uh, interviews before, and you said both of you, Casey and you, like were doing QA before. So I don't know. If, I guess that had a lot to do with this idea of you know being more test driven and. Uh, which which is a common thing in software, right? You know, like test driven development stuff like that. Uh, definitely, I, th- I think it was a large impact actually, because yeah. So so basically, Casey and I, we met each other in college um, when we were studying computer science, and then at the time we made some like small little hobbyist games. So we made like a flash game and a little iPhone game, and they they, they weren't any good, but they were just us like figuring stuff out. And then, uh, then we got our degrees, and we went off into the industry. We stopped doing the game thing for a while, and uh, we we worked at different companies, um, and we were estets. So, you know, we were doing QA mm-hmm. stuff, and yeah, I, I learned a lot in doing that. And we just learned about <laughs> um, the importance of of actually doing like testing and just things that are often overlooked. I feel like. Yeah, um, uh, and especially still, yeah, yeah, and also just like user level things. So uh, we learned a lot from that, and then after that, we left our jobs and uh, started Mega Crit. So and then we went off to make Slow Aspire. But um, so that is, that is our background, and I, you know, I don't know that there's too much like concrete example mm-hmm. as as more of it's more of like a holistic thing. Like when you're actually doing QA all the time, you just you really learn a lot about things to avoid and. And uh, especially when you're like, you know, testing other people's crappy code. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, um, it, it, was a, it was an interesting experience and I think it was definitely helpful. No, I mean, yeah, I think it gets back to some of the stuff uh, that I mentioned, uh, Polanyi, and he has this concept of tacit knowledge that a lot of the things we know we can't even express or we can't say. And so maybe it's just, you were, I mean, knowing that you, were, you guys were doing that for so long, for how many years, pick up on those skills and you apply them uh, and successfully uh, in your next venture. Uh, I think it's really cool. Yeah, I guess let's, I think it'd be cool to talk about, uh, I guess like steam early access um, and then your experiences with that. And so steam early access is basically, it's a way that you can launch your game in steam where um, you launch it basically before it's, it's uh, finished. You, you would say, um, and where the, the goal of early access is that the developer is going to keep working on it, pushing out updates and um, get feedback from their players in theory. And then eventually they'll have their full launch out of early access. And then you'll say it's like 1.0 or whatever. So essentially it's like beta then. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, basically it's a fancy way of saying beta yeah. <laughs> almost, but you know, it's more about, I, I think there's some theory there that it's supposed to also emphasize um, community feedback. And so, so the thing with early access is that a lot of games go into early access and then they don't do it right. Like they, they'll have long periods of time in between updates. They won't use uh, their community feedback that much. They will just use it like a beta. Um, 
like a short beta or something. There, there's a lot of ways where, because early access, it's not anything more than like a way that you can launch into Steam. It's on the developer and how they handle it, right? It's just it's just language to communicate to your player base. Essentially, you say by saying I'm in early access, it's it's just a way to communicate to your players your intentions as a developer. And so, what developers do when they're in early access is going to vary because there's no hard and fast rules. But to us, we wanted to have a very fast iteration cycle. That was something we had in development that we really liked. And uh, we learned, so we had, we had playtesters who were playtesting our game throughout our development, and we were giving them like daily builds, basically. Mm-hmm. And that really kept them engaged because things were just constantly changing. And if, if you're, if, um, if things are always changing, your players are less likely to be bored. So, um, so we knew we wanted to keep fast iteration cycles. Um, so we did. Uh, so that was one thing. And the other thing is that we wanted to have a very, very um, strong communication loop between our player base and us. So we we did a bunch of tooling for that, and I, I can go into that in a bit. But um, mm-hmm. so we launched into early access after two and a half years of development. And we did weekly updates. So every Thursday, we were pushing out a new update to players. And it's uh, a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, oh boy, <laughs> I, I'll I can go into that. But um, so it was a ton. And in fact, we were actually pushing out more frequently than that because we actually created a beta branch where we had a beta branch and our main branch. And our beta branch, we would push out daily updates, and then our and then after a week of, of daily updates in the beta branch, then we'd push into the main branch. So, um, so we were basically just constantly pushing stuff out to people. And, and how we framed it is, you know, hey, you can go into the beta branch. The game's going to be buggier. It's going to be less stable, but you'll help us test mm-hmm. stuff out so that, you, so that um, you know, the releases will be more stable. And then also you'll be on the bleeding edge. You'll be getting the content that might be changing the very next day. Because that's the thing that would happen. Uh, so players thought that was really cool, and it was super, super intense for us because you just have this constant cycle of development. And, you know, we don't have, we didn't have lives as a result, but uh, but our players loved it, <laughs> and uh, and it was really good for just constantly iterating quickly. And then we had that strong uh, community interaction where we had our Discord servers up. And we were always in there and people could talk to us and we had bots set up that would collect feedback and bug reports and things and store them for us. So anyone could go into our discord server and say bug, you know, this stuff is terribly broken. Fix it, please. You know, and, and then Mm -hmm. we we would get, we would keep track of all that in a, in a tracker. So, um, so anyone could like just instantly provide feedback. And then we were also like checking Reddit and other places and then just, replying to people constantly. So we were always very visible to the community and we would always, we would always be fixing things. So someone could post on Reddit like a, a bad bug and we could just reply. We would just we'd feel no issues just replying to them, you know, 5 minutes later and being like, "Oh, hey, that's terrible. We'll push out a hot fix soon." And then we'd fix it. And then you know, we get a bunch of upvotes and people would be really happy because it's, you know, it's really cool when you see a developer actually coming in and just answering your question and solving it. You know, it's it, it's a really feel-good moment, and uh, and it makes our product better as a result. So it makes our community happier, makes our product better, 
um, you know, it's just kind of a win-win all around, except that, you know, it just eats, <laughs> eats a ton. I mean, you know, so <laughs> so uh, that, that's that's the only thing is it, it consumes a lot of you. yeah. I think it's interesting, like um, even like the name of this podcast, like Maintainers Anonymous. Like I think what I was thinking is that a lot of times, you know, for anything really, that you know people use things and they have no idea who works on it, and being able to be involved like that is cool because then they actually know that you're a person and you're a human behind the work. Um, this is true in open source and any type of infrastructure, you know, like you kind of, you're, you become anonymous or, uh, or the opposite is when you become like really well known and then you become a celebrity, but then they still don't treat you like a person. So it's, it's like, it's interesting. Um, yeah, I, I really, I didn't finish this talk. There was a talk someone gave, um, it was, uh, it was called like put your name on your game or something. I think it was like, cause uh, getting over it by Bennett Foggy. I think he he did it. Um, I think that was really cool because it was just saying how like a lot of times for some reason it's just culturally you don't do it, and um, and it's important for the success of future games and and your career. So it's like it's interesting um, that it's not as much of a thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. I actually I I watched that talk and I thought it was, mm-hmm. it was very wise. Um, I think uh, more being just like more personal with. Uh, Mm-hmm. With your player base is just a good thing. I mean, it was one of the big takeaways from Slipspire. It was something that I knew I wanted because I like it when developers are more responsive, you know, push updates more often and are more real people and less like, here's our our corporate community person. Mm-hmm. Just like make you guys feel better <laughs> and we don't actually do anything. Um, so it was something I knew would be good. Or, you know, I suspect it, I should say. But then uh, after doing the Aspire now, it's definitely a practice we plan to continue going forward because, you know, we saw the results and it was just nothing but positive. Although we might slow down our release cycle yeah. <laughs> to maybe once every two weeks or something, you know, it's something a bit more manageable. Because while you were saying all that, I'm just like reminded of uh, what I've done in open source and I'm, I, even the five minute thing. Like, you know, we would write, uh, so I make an issue on GitHub and then. Uh, the the previous the creator of the project that I worked on he would he knew all the code base and then he would just fix it immediately and like within like five minutes no pull request just like commit directly to the master and then make a release and I was like oh maybe I should do that and then it's like later it's like well I'm not that confident in my ability and it's a lot of work and so I just feel it's like a lot of uh, uh, just like looking back and learning like yeah that is really good but then in the end. You can't keep up, and I, I know obviously it's different with open source and you know uh, making a game because we're giving it away for free. So in some sense, it's good to have goodwill, but in the end, we do all this work. Um, you're not getting paid more, uh, and people are getting even more entitled because they're wondering why didn't you fix this thing? Right. Um, the incentives are different for sure. So it, it's it's like it's hard because obviously you want to be able to. You know, fix as many bugs as possible and all the features, but in the end, you have limited time and an increasing amount of people using it um, without even you doing any marketing. Which is weird because <laughs> open source is funny because when you give it away, more people will use it. Um, the more users you have, it doesn't necessarily lead to anything more other than more work, um, which is kind of <laughs> funny. Um, so yeah, it's a different like marketing and all that is very different from uh, I guess proprietary software. But you know the community aspect 
regardless of that, it's still the same of like, how do you interact with people? How do you stay positive? Um, should you even respond to every single thing? Yeah. And I mean, you know, certainly I didn't, we don't respond to literally everything, yeah, yeah, yeah. but we respond yeah. to, you know, a huge chunk of it. So, well, I guess then it's like, how do you, how do both you or your team like prioritize things? Um, I, I think it's been hard for me after I've left my job trying to figure out what to do. And it's like, you know, we all want this freedom, but then someone in the back of your mind, like, oh, I would, it would be nice if someone just told me to do this because that's the right thing. So, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, because we did have like, you know, big lists of like features and things that were or new content that we would always need to be working on. And, uh, you know, it's more like we would just create a um, kind of a balance between bug fixes and content and features. And we would just try to always be working on a mix of them. You know, sometimes we'd have patches that were more about fixing bugs. Um, and sometimes we'd have patches that were more fix, uh, focused on just like pushing out a big new feature or something. And it's, it was just more of a, what do we feel like working on? What do we feel is particularly bad right now? You know, are things particularly buggy at the moment? Then we should probably, you know, slow down, fix a bunch of bugs. Um, do we, did we want to like really get out this, like this new daily feature? Then, okay, we're just going to focus on that and maybe only get, take care of a couple of bugs. And then some of it is like the severity of the issue, right? So like, you know, obviously if you have a game crashing because of something that's going to be really high priority and that that's kind of a thing that you can just kind of internally figure out, you know, I don't want to say intuition or common sense, but you, you can have a good feel for it. I mean, you know, people prioritize bugs all the time and things like that. So, you know, we just, we make evaluations and judgments and then we just acted on them quickly and we, we didn't have, you know, we're not having like, because we were, we were just two people, basically, we didn't have a high friction on decisions. It's like, you know, we don't even meet up in person. It's like, we're just talking on, you know, discord basically. And, and we would just talk things through, um, you know, maybe once a day or whatever and say, Hey, these are the tasks we think are important. And we just go and work on them. But you're both in Seattle. Though. Yeah, we are both in Seattle. So sometimes we would meet, but like, you know, on a day to day, we would like, uh, we're just working out of our houses. So. Right, so there's no like office or anything. yeah, because that that reminds me of open source because like we're all distributed too, and it, it's it's a good and a bad thing. So it's good because you can just like you know get out of bed, start working, and <laughs> and uh, and not have to worry about you know getting nicely dressed, commutes, and the commute. But it's also bad because you can get out of bed and just start working, and and then you know, work until you go to bed. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, it has its advantages. And it's just, yep, I've been there for sure. <laughs> I guess I wanted one thing I thought was really like, just listening to uh, both of you talk like this. I, I guess I would use the word accessibility. I think is really interesting thinking about this game. Um, you know, I, I think you said before that strategy games are kind of inaccessible, inaccessible to people at times. And so it was a priority for you to, to kind of make it easier to like understand what's going on by watching it. So for streaming and also for like learning, um, can you talk more about that? Yeah, sure. So, uh, one of kind of our central theories was, uh, that how people find games these days is YouTube and Twitch, right? It's like, it's how I, I would find my new games for the most part. You know, I generally don't read press very much about games mm-hmm. reviews even you know i watch people and then if i say hey that game looks interesting i go and play it 
to me, it seemed like we would really need to focus on that. We were no name indies, you know, had never made anything uh, that had really been released to anyone before. We had zero marketing budget. So if we, we really needed to make something that would be engaging and hopefully would work well on Twitch, that was like the thought. Um, especially because for our genre, the thinking was like, if we could get some like Hearthstone or Magic streamers to play the game, we could really build momentum off of that. To do that, we really wanted to try to make the game very, um, very easy to visually understand what's going on. So you know, not hiding things in submenu after submenu, really displaying all of the information on the screen that's relevant. So that if you come in and you're watching, you can see what's going on, see like why the streamer is making the decision they're making. And, and also, if you can understand where they make mistakes and when they make good plays, that is really, really compelling. Mm. Because you know sometimes I'll like watch a streamer play some strategy game or something. I will have no clue what's going on. The streamer basically <laughs> has to tell me. And then even, even when I do, or even when they do explain what's happening, you can't, you know, you you have no real concept of if they're making bad plays or not. And so you're you're just kind of less engaged with the experience. Whereas like with Slay the Spire, you can see, hey, the enemy is attacking for 27 damage. And I can see all the cards in, in the player's hand. And if the streamer makes a mistake, I can say, hey, they screwed up. Like, I can mm-hmm. do better, you know? And you can think, hey, I, I want to try playing this game. <laughs> uh, or you, and, you know, or you can, like, it'll be a fun moment, and you can say something in chat, you know? Stuff, stuff like that. It kind of increases engagement and makes the, the player more interested in the game. So, so that was part of a, a huge part of the thinking. And I think that's a very, very big component of our success because like I said, we basically spent zero dollars on marketing, but it was just yeah. just been a Twitch and YouTube um sensation and that's how we've really, really spread. So it makes sense because like now people and this is maybe true in journalism and other fields where it's like people follow, you know, these these influencers, I suppose, instead of just going to news. Then it makes sense to just find those people. And then of course if they're already playing similar games and might be easier for them to get involved. I do. I like this idea that you know, for accessibility, that you know, making the game better for viewers actually makes it better for the actual people playing it too, which is really cool. Like I think, and then that also leads to more sales for you. So I think there's like a win-win on making your game more accessible is just better for everyone. Yeah, exactly. And also, it it helps you to like just. I mean, really, you're just streamlining the game to. Mm-hmm to be a better, more enjoyable experience. Like sometimes, you know, some players definitely do like the super like, you know, spreadsheety style of UI and things, but that's just not, not what I'm interested in. So. <laughs> oh, I, I guess uh, I know that there was an example of this happening with um, like, with uh, showing the intent of the, the, I guess, monsters that you're fighting um, and like how that changed over time. Sure, so the intent system was something that was actually not in the original design. Mm-hmm. And that came more about of the thinking about Twitch and YouTube and and thinking like that. We Originally, the monsters just did a random move. It kind of just felt too random. You know, it was, it was more like, I would say, a traditional JRPG combat where if you, if you think like your little Final Fantasy characters fighting against some monster it'll just it just has an ai it doesn't move on its turn and 
you know, you have to like learn or look it up what they're what they're going to do. We didn't like how it felt, so we we went to the drawing board and we thought of a bunch of different ideas. We had several different systems along the way to the current intent system. And what we found was just that being like displaying information to the player, you know, it's not just good for streaming, but like I said, it's, it's, it made for more engaging strategical experience because you have more information to work with. So you can make a more informed decision and Mm -hmm. it makes your choices um, more meaningful. If you, if you don't know how much damage the monster is going to do, then you will, what you'll end up doing actually is you'll create like dumber heuristics. So you'll be like, well, I'm just going to block for 10 and deal the rest that I can in damage, I guess, but I don't know. Or you'll be like, well, I have no idea if the enemy is going to attack or not. So I guess I'll just always attack. You know, you, you'll, you'll create like mm-hmm. these kind of, of, ways of thinking and those are less interesting than instead you're like okay the enemy is going to hit for 15 how much do i actually want to block of that um you know should i go all out or not and when you when you have that information it actually lets you think about it more and that's more interesting yeah i think it's, it's it almost feels like ironic like giving more information is like a good thing because normally i don't i guess there's not that many games that do that but it totally makes sense when you're playing it's like oh I know exactly what they're going to do, and now I can make the yeah informed decision. Mm-hmm. And 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 actually, the creators of FTL, which is a successful indie game, you know, they came out with Through the Breach. They came out with it a bit after us. Um, and what was funny is they had actually kind of came to a similar system where you can like you can see what the enemy is going to do on its turn. Yeah, I, I played that as well. It, it felt like it definitely felt like chess kind of thing, where it's like oh, there's pieces, and you can see like what they're going to do next too. Yeah, it's really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's uh it's actually something I think we'll carry forward into our future games where uh just displaying information and being open in a strategy game is I think an interesting thing that's probably underutilized at the current moment. Similar to that is like how do you create a UI that doesn't like you know, you want like there's maybe there's too many things going on. So it's like how do you kind of put information into places where uh, that makes sense for the, versus just like all this text everywhere. I mean, that's that's tough. So one is like simplifying and making your game more elegant, and then two is just like iterating on it. I mean, really, we we iterated on our UI a ton. I mean, we would we went through constant changes to it. We would we had not only our internal playtesting channels, but we would like go out to local Seattle indie events and have people play, and then we'd you know, we'd watch them and just with like notebooks in hand and we would do this just to look at how they were interacting with the UI and if they were able to understand things or not. And we'd think about like, hey, does this flash here need to be bigger so people can see it more, stuff like that. So, I mean, that's honestly, I think, just a very iterative process. There's not mm-hmm. like a good silver bullet where you can just say, oh, do this and your problems will be solved. It's uh, UI design is... Um, actually a, a huge component of good game design, I think. And it's actually underrated how important it is. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I, I feel like in, so, in some ways, like the game UIs, even though I'm not, I guess all of them are that great, but uh, it's similar in like websites where it's like, it a lot of times things don't make sense and it's just like everything gets more and more complicated. And it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't really get simpler. It just becomes more like hierarchical menus. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and those those can be like problematic. I feel like if you think about it, the UI, the UI, the UI and the UX of the game are that's how the player is experiencing it. Like that's the interface through which the player is experiencing the game. So of course these are going to be vital because you know you're not watching a movie, so you, you are interfacing with the game. So that the way that you interface needs to be tight. Yeah, I guess it's, it is interesting how people don't really think about it that much. It's, it's similar in open source. Like for those tools that you use, normally, you know, the way you get around it is like you have you write some documentation, you create tutorials, but in the end, if you had a simpler configuration or interface, then maybe none of those things are necessary or are less like mm-hmm. yeah 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 just read the manual uh, um yeah well the thing is it's really hard to do correctly right it's it's like it's a very non trivial thing and sometimes like you know i mean ultimately i'm making a game if you know if you're making some very complicated piece of open source software you know it's, maybe it's not really a a realistic thing <laughs> to to simplify yeah or it's just it, it might be harder to iterate over, or, or it's just you don't really see it that much. So maybe it's more like if more people do it, then more people think it's important. Um, I, I don't know. It's hard to, especially for a more established project. It, you know, this is true of anything, right? Like when you have a big company, it's harder to. It feels like it's harder to like innovate and try new things because you don't want to break things. D- definitely, I think uh, being small is a huge advantage for innovation. Um, the the more I've I've interfaced with various large organizations in my life, the 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 more I've thought that that is definitely true. So, especially in the gaming industry, I think it'd be interesting to talk about like even or what do you think kind of the future of where board games and video games can go um, in terms of not just like gameplay but also just like how it affects society and where we're going. I know that's kind of broad. Uh, honestly, I'm not sure. So I I. Like in terms of how it affects society, like in, like meaningful change or something, I'd say that's kind of nebulous. Uh, it's more more of a artsy kind of discussion than uh, than how you know I you know Slay Spire is not really a that kind of a game. I don't think that's really the kind of game that I'll be making. But um, certainly there is, there is like you know art that can be made through games and that and looks at like serious topics in an interesting way. But you know, I don't think that that'll be uh, ultimately it's going to be similar to any other kind of art in that sense, you know? So I don't know that it's going to create huge sweeping changes in, in society <laughs> that way or anything. Um, yeah. yeah. So. Well, yeah, I, I guess I didn't think it was huge changes. I guess it's more like it is more subtle. Like it's like, uh, that it becomes more of a normal thing than I don't know people think. I mean, I, I kind of I kind of feel like games are already that normal thing. Like if if you, uh, like for for my generation, I assume your generation too. I, I imagine you're about my age. Um, so for our generation um, and the generation under us, it's probably at, at least for people in like developed countries, it's probably more likely that you have played video games than that you have not. So, and I think that trend is only going up, you know, it's like, it's like, mm-hmm. it's weird if you don't watch TV or haven't watched TV at some point or like Netflix, you know, and the same, I think video games are basically at that level. 
they're they're mainstream in a way that they weren't in the past. And I don't think they're gonna like lose that mainstreamness, you know. Like everyone knows what Fortnite is. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna bring that <laughs> and, up too. You know, uh it's not just like a thing that the nerds in school did and the bullies pick on them. Like mm-hmm. that's that's old. That's way in the past now. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining me today, Anthony. If people want to reach out or or how can they find you or if they want to get the game? Sure. So our website's at megacrit.com. We're on Steam under Slay the Spire. We're on Nintendo Switch and PS4 now. Uh, we will be maybe coming to mobile later this year. So yeah, uh, we're, we're out there and we're going to we're gonna keep working on Slay the Spire and then eventually come out with more stuff. But um, yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening. Check out our website, maintainersanonymous.com, for show notes and transcripts. If you have any feedback, ideas, or guest suggestions, you can reach me on Twitter at left underscore pat. If you'd like to support the show, you can visit patreon.com slash henryzoo.